It's great to be with you. Tonight we're starting this three-part series uh, with questions people might have about Christian things. Tonight our question is, why doesn't God just make himself clearer? Why doesn't God just make himself clearer? Um, it may have uh, been mentioned, but you can always grab one if you uh, like one. Of you, uh, there are children's sheets at the back with clipboards. That might help you follow along. With this question, I, tonight I would like to speak to you, particularly if you are someone who doesn't yet believe in Jesus and are asking this question. Uh, now, church is uh, primarily for people who do already believe in Jesus. It's a, it's a kind of a family gathering. But tonight, particularly, I'd like to speak to you if this isn't your family, whether you've come here tonight, and if so, welcome, or maybe you're listening online, uh, catching up afterwards on a podcast, maybe a friend from Christchurch has sent you this link uh, because they know you're asking this question. I want to speak to you tonight, uh, well, whenever you're listening, whatever time it is when you're catching up. Just to say, um, for the rest of us, hopefully this gives you a bit of an idea how you might answer a friend or, or engage with someone who's asking these kinds of things themselves. Uh, but for everyone, uh, note this is also a sermon. So I don't expect uh, to kind of this pattern to be copied. So if you're in, in the pub over a pint, I don't expect to ring the pint, stand on the table and say, hear ye, hear ye, and deliver a 25-minute monologue uh, just because someone said, oh, why doesn't God make himself clearer? Hopefully there's enough food for thought to, um, to help you know what the next thing you might say, or at least the next area you might explore with that person, that friend. Now, let me speak to you again if, uh, as the kind of target audience. If, if you are asking this question as someone who doesn't know Jesus yet, one of the uh, downsides of this kind of uh, interaction is I can't ask you questions because that's really what I want to do first. I wouldn't want to un- uh, assume that I've understood what you're asking. And also, I'd love to get to know you more because who you are and what your story is really shapes what you're asking. So here are the sorts of things I might ask uh, more gen- uh, to any sort of question to Christian things. What makes you ask that? Just an open question. Why is that on your mind? Is that something you've been thinking about for a long time? Uh, and maybe, what can I do to help? <laughs> what kind of answers are you looking for, if any? Moving on to the uh, specific question for tonight, why doesn't God just make himself clearer? I would ask a couple of things. There's always a good question, what do you mean by? Just so I can understand. I think I know what I would mean if I use those words, but what do you mean by that? Now, for the purpose of tonight, I can't go around and ask everybody what you might mean by God or clearer. So let me just define them as uh, I understand them, and hopefully that's general enough for the rest of us. Uh, By God, uh, I'm going to talk about the God of the Bible, the Christian Bible, uh, found mostly in Jesus, clearest of all in Jesus. Uh, And in terms of clearer, what I would hear from someone asking me that, why doesn't God make himself clearer, I would understand them to be saying, can God make my decision a bit easier? I know God says I should follow him, but I'm not so sure if that's the right thing to do, if he's really there. If he could just make it more obvious, then I would know for sure. Could he be clearer to kind of make the decision easier? easier? So that's how I'm, uh, I'm going to understand that. I would then also want to ask you one more question before I started trying to engage with it myself. And that would be, what would you do if he did? What would you do if God did make himself clearer? It's a good question, isn't it? If if you're thinking that question now, what would you do? What would you do if God really made himself clearer to you? What if he made himself clearer to you tonight? What would you do? 
In thinking about the decision-making, before we get on to the Bible's answer to this question, uh, I want to think of it, when we talk about clarity of decision, and kind of, we, might, we might use words like proof and evidence. Now, the Bible doesn't put forward a kind of proof that um, forces us into a compulsive belief. Think of, for example, the belief that you have to breathe. All right? I think all of us believe we have to breathe. And what happens if we try to not believe that? We'd have to believe it. Our body wouldn't let us not believe it. We'd have to put it into practice. It's not that kind of belief that the Bible forces us into. However, it is more the, the language of faith, of trust. There is a choice, a real dignity that each of us has to choose to follow God. And so when we talk about evidence or proof, it's more like the evidence or proof you might find in a courtroom. No one was there in the actual event we're looking at, but we're looking for evidence from it. What are the clues? So we might, might play detective. It's that kind of thing, so that we might make a best decision that we can uh, come to by what we can see. All right, that's enough, uh, enough preamble by a long way. Why doesn't God just make himself clearer? Well, I want to show us three answers from the Bible tonight. And the summary answer is, he's made himself clear enough. Firstly, God is very clear in creation. Secondly, God is very clear in his commandments. And thirdly, he is most clear in Christ. So three C's by which we can see. Creation, commandments, Christ. The first two come from Psalm 19, and the third comes from John chapter 20, which is read first. So we're going to look at uh, Psalm 19. If, um, if you'd like to, you can have that open. That'd be great uh, to be able to see what we're looking at. But don't worry if you can't see it. I'll talk you through what we, um, what we want to focus on. So firstly, God has made himself clear in creation. In Psalm 19, in this song, uh, David writes about creation and, and talks about it like this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. David looks up and says, I'm learning something. I'm learning something from the sky about God. And then he uses this language of speech. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. So in the daytime, it's talking. The heat of the sun, it's telling you something. The night stars, they're telling you something. And then David goes on to say, they don't need translation, all right? Because they have no speech, they use no words. There's not a sound. Yet, verse 4, their voice goes out into all the earth. It's as if the skies are speaking, David says. And I think we have a sense of that. If you visit almost any culture around the world, through any period in history, if you could go back in time, you would find that basically everybody who's ever lived has a sense that there is someone behind the universe. It speaks in a language that doesn't need translation. It talks to each of us and says, there's someone here. It's very clear. And the Bible says that it's very clear. All right. What do we do with that? Because he talks, uh, just, this is the first half of Psalm 19, by the way. This is from the little one right at the beginning where it says the heavens declare, down to the little verse 6. It rises at one end of the heavens where it's talking about the sun. What do we do with this evidence in creation? Does it tell us that God is there? Because it doesn't have words. 
But what kind of clue is it? I want you to imagine that you and I, uh, we're, we're, um, we happen to be on a cruise ship together. Uh, maybe whether we knew each other beforehand doesn't really matter. But we're on this cruise ship, and then suddenly it sinks. And the two of us are washed ashore, just you and me, on a beach. And it's perfect white sand. Now, we're pretty sad about the whole thing, but it's a nice place to be. And we get chatting, and we, and we no one's ever been here before, has there? There's no sign of life. We are the first people on this beach, this tiny island. And we hang out there for a little while. We try and makeshift shelters and all that sort of stuff. No one's ever been here before. We know that. No sign of life. But then one day we're exploring a bit of a beach we've not been to before. And we come across a pile of stones. Fifteen stones high. You know those kind of smooth rounded stones? Stacked fifteen high. And we look at it. And you touch it. Just a little touch. And it collapses. Because it's so finely balanced. And so, you know, there's not a lot to do on the island, so we think, well, let's try and build it back up. And we can't. It's too difficult. They were so precisely balanced, we can't, we can't manage it. At that point, what do we think? Do those stones tell us something? You see, if we're committed to the idea that we're the only people on the beach, what do we then have to say? Well, there's some kind of natural process by which rocks fall out of the sky and enough of it happened that this one stayed standing. That is, that is mathematically possible. You shoot enough stones into the sky and at some point or later, 15 of them will land and balance. You might be there quite a while, but it could happen. But is that what we're going to believe? Is, is that the right thing to believe, that it's just you and me? Or might those stones be telling us, do you know what, there's someone else here. It doesn't have any words, but does it tell us something? Francis Collins, one scientist, writes about the universe. You won't understand all the words unless you're into physics, but that's fine. He says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants. The gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., I'm sure you could fill in the blanks, uh, that have precise values. If any one of these constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where it is. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. Fifteen stones balanced perfectly. Does it tell us anything? Sure, it's not a slam dunk. It doesn't force you to believe anything. You could believe chance. Or you could believe, well, we don't know for sure, so I'm not going to choose anything. You could say that to yourself. But the evidence is very striking, isn't it? I'd love to talk to you uh, a bit more about this. If, um, if something you've been engaged with this uh, idea that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Maybe you thought about that, or a friend has. I'd love to talk more. But my sense is, we kind of end up believing what we already started believing. If we are totally committed to there being no one else on the beach, then we'll always think that. Nothing will change our minds. Any, anything they leave behind won't change our minds if we're committed to that idea in the beginning. Clear in creation. Clear in creation. Just one more thought experiment on that. Imagine tonight you're out, it's hot, you can't sleep, you go out, 
you look up in the, in the garden, you look up to the st- uh, sky, let's say it's a clear night, and you just look at the stars, and you see one that's just a faint pinprick of light. And this is, a, I said imagine, right? Imagine you start floating up, faster and faster towards that light. And soon you're out of the Earth's atmosphere, but don't worry, you can breathe, and you're heading towards this, light, uh, this star, which is millions of light years away. And what was just a faint pinprick that didn't even, wasn't always visible, becomes a sharp bit of light. And then it becomes a ball. And then it becomes a globe. And then it becomes, well, you know what it is. It's burning gas. But when it is a wall of fire, when it is so big that you can't see over it or below it or around it, when it is facing you and you are looking at this enormous thing that exists in the universe, you might realize this is telling me something. It is not just random. It is not just meaningless. The Bible says, the skies proclaim the work of God's hands. He is very clear in creation. That's the first half of Psalm 19, very clear in creation. Now let's move on to the second half of Psalm 19, that God is very clear in his commandments. And that's by the little number seven. The law of the Lord is perfect. And David kind of has this pattern where he says something about the law and then what it does, what its effect is. The law of the Lord is perfect. It refreshes the soul. The statutes of the law, again, another word for laws or commandments of the Lord, are trustworthy, making the simple wise into wise people. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. You see, he talks about God's word, his commandments, and says it makes people better. It's really clear. It makes people better. It makes simple people wise. You see, the clarity of God in his commandments is something beyond nature. Nature doesn't have literal words. But the commandments, the law, well, that's all they are in a sense, aren't they? Just words. But in these just words, in these mere words, it tells us about a writer of these laws. Someone who is good and true and right perfect and trustworthy, radiant, pure, firm, more precious than gold. See, the laws or the commandments that God has written, they go beyond the the laws of the jungle. Because if we were to look into nature as to how to live, well, how would you live? All you could work out how how you should live is by watching um, a wildlife program on the BBC. Well, I mean, eat what you need, kill things that get in your way, Protect your own territory. Is that a good way to live? I mean, is it the way you want everyone else to live? (laughs) Absolutely not. You want people to treat you with care and respect that goes beyond the animal world, that goes beyond just mere nature into something good and true in words. Uh, I was learning um, this week about a a chap called William Hartley. He was born in 1846 in Lancashire, and he had a family shop. Uh, He grew up in, uh, his parents were Christians, they always took him to church, and he took over the family business running a shop. Um, And one day, um, the jam supply ran out. Couldn't get any jam. So William Hartley thought, well, I'll I'll make some jam. People really like jam, I'll have to make some jam. Uh, And he he made 100 tonnes. That's a lot of jam, isn't it? He's pretty confident he's going to sell it. And it quickly became very popular because he wouldn't put turnips in, like other people did, to bulk it out, and he wouldn't put carrots in as a cheap sugar substitute. Hartley wanted to live a certain way and make a certain quality of stuff. 
Here's what he said about his life. My daily prayer is that God will show me what he wishes me to do. Not that I'll look out on the world and see what the world wants me to do, but I will find out from God what God wants me to do. What does he command me to do? Now, Hartley and his wife were passionate Christians, and so they resolved to always give away 10% of their gross income for religious and humanitarian purposes. 10% of gross income, that's before tax, that's before any clever work's done. If you started a business, just imagine starting out and giving away 10% of your income before you do anything with that. That's not a great business model. You're going to be struggling. But Hartley and his wife did it because he said, when we think of the life of Jesus Christ, then nothing we can do is too much. And his jam got more and more popular. And Hartley's jam is still quite popular today. Another thing he did is he took care of his employees. At a time when many people didn't really care for those who worked for them, he ventilated his factories. He served them wholesome meals for cheap prices in the staff dining room. He would invest money to take the physical labour out of jobs. He built a model village where people could live cheaply with the luxuries in those days of a front garden and running water. He also introduced a profit-sharing scheme, which other people were going to copy until they found out it wasn't for profit's sake. It was to go above and beyond to care for those in his employ- uh, who were in employment. And so they didn't copy it. Hartley was living under the commands of God. What could change someone to do that, to live that way? Now again, it's not, it isn't the kind of proof that compels you. You must believe. But just think, if every business ran this way, every business, now think of any business in the world, if, imagine if it ran like this, like Hartley's did. Because he said, we followers of Jesus Christ must carry into our life his spirit and teaching. And that whenever we think of Jesus, what he has been done in our place, whether we are employers or employed, whether we're in business or out of business, That we are compelled to do. Whatever Jesus would lead us to do, that's what we're compelled to do. To love people. I think we would all agree that if businesses ran that way, the world would be a pretty good place for the love of their employees and for those they serve. Do you think any business has love as its founding value? Or or many, rather, of the larger ones. It's not what makes the world go round, and yet we see in the commands of God something clear, something good, something beautiful. I want to ask, are you drawn to that as you consider Hartley's life and others like him? And there are uh, Christians in business today who live on on similar lines. Clear in his commands. And so just before we move on to the third C, I want to encourage you, if you've never read the Bible, read it. And ask yourself, What if I lived like this? And what if everyone lived like this? What would the world be like? It would be heaven on earth. It would be heaven on earth. Because it is good, perfect, trustworthy and right. Where does such a book come from? God is very clear in his creation. He's very clear in his commandments. And thirdly, he's most clear in Christ. And that's in John chapter 20. And that was uh, the first reading we had. You can flick forward to that. Um, someone can shout out the page number. I'm sorry, I didn't note it down. My Bible's got different page numbers. By the way, if you're hot, I'm hot too. So I'm with you in that. 
1,089. Thank you very much. Most clear in Christ. And this is going to be pretty simple. So Jesus, John's Gospel tells us, uh, John is, is writing, the, the John of the title is the guy who wrote this down. And he lived alongside Jesus and he saw him. And one of the things that John makes very clear is that he believes that Jesus is God on earth. Not just a bloke, but God on earth. God come as a human. And John goes uh, on to detail what happens in Jesus' life, including his death on the cross, his burial in the tomb, and then a resurrection. Jesus wasn't the first to be crucified. He definitely wasn't the first to be buried. But he was the first to be raised to life by the power of God to live forever. And we pick up in verse 24 of chapter 20 with a guy called Thomas. And I think you'll like Thomas. If you're asking the question, why doesn't God just make himself clearer? I think you'll like Thomas. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which probably explains why he liked to be called Thomas, one of the twelve, well he wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came the first time. So Jesus had appeared, but Thomas hadn't been there. He'd missed out in a big way. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord Thomas. We've, We've seen him. And Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, where a spear had gone in, unless those three things happen, I will not believe. Now, actually, we don't know his tone of voice. Maybe he really wanted to, he was desperate to believe, but he just couldn't bring himself to. Maybe an anguished cry, unless I do that, I won't believe. Well, A week later, verse 26, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. He'd learned, don't go out. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, how dare you? Get out? Jesus is a very, very gracious saviour. He said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Just pulls this robe back so Thomas can see it. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas, he's true to his word. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. See, the disciples saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. Died, risen. Now, we don't have it in John's Gospel, but we do know as we go through the Bible that the disciples, many of them would go to die for what they believed. They would be telling people, yeah, I've seen Jesus, he's back from the dead, he's definitely God, you've got to follow him. And people said, well, if you keep saying that, we're going to kill you. At which point, they probably thought, hmm, do I definitely believe that? And their answer was, yes, I do. So they kept saying it, and they were killed. Why would you do that? Because it's very clear. When you have met the risen Jesus, it's very clear. They believed. Now, we are not the disciples. We were not there. It's evidence. It's, it's something that you have to respond to. Maybe, you, yeah, you'd love to have some CCTV footage. But this is what we have. And these disciples, they laid their lives down that you might hear these truths, hear these claims. So now what? 
We've covered three different answers from the Bible, linked but different. Why doesn't God just make himself clearer? Well, he has made himself very clear in creation. He has made himself very clear in his commandments. They're transforming power and goodness. And he's made himself most clear in Christ. Now what? That's the answer over with. Doesn't mean we can't talk more. But that's the answer over with. Now it's over to you. Verse 29. Jesus told him, that is Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. You see me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, Jesus says there's this whole other category of people who haven't seen him who yet believe. And so the offer is there, the invitation is there to you right now. Do you want to join that club? People who haven't seen him and have yet believed. You, you don't need to have touched his side, Jesus says, in order to believe in him. And then John goes on writing in verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But, verse 31, this is the crucial bit for us now. These are written, these things that are written, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I'm going to read that verse again. It's so important. Verse 31. These are written that you, put your name in, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is what is on offer to you in Jesus right now. Life in his name. Life by believing that he is God's king, come to save us, come to save you. That he is God's king who died and was buried and is raised. Life forever. The life that he has. That is what's on offer. So, to kind of sum up the answer, God has made himself very clear. And he's not going to make himself any clearer. You might find that a bit challenging. But he's not going to make himself any clearer. And so the question comes back to us, to you. What are you going to choose now? What are you going to choose now? Because you have to make a choice. Um, I once, um, I spent a little bit of time living in Oxford. Um, and there is a, there's a library in Oxford called the Bodleian. I meant to look up how many books are in the Bodleian. Um, it's a lot. Very, very clever, clever books. I think I've probably read, I don't know, I guess like two, Maybe unless the asterisk back catalogue is in there, we'll leave it at two. I don't think it is. How many books in the Bodleian have you read? Probably not very many. That's just, that's just one library. How many books have you read in that library? Probably not very many. Then I was thinking another B in Oxford. There's a place called Blackbird Lees, which is an estate. And there are loads of people who live in Blackbird Lees, and they all have lives. They have names. They have relationships. How many of those people do you know? How many of those things do you know about them? I lived in Oxford, I, I didn't really know anyone from there. So I know almost nothing about a, a library in one place. I know almost nothing about one estate in that place. And that place is just one place, in one country, on one planet, in one galaxy, in a universe that is bigger than we can comprehend. How much is there to know? If we were going to imagine that no knowledge is the floor here and, and full knowledge is the ceiling right up there, 
How much is, in, that's all, is, all there is to know. How much do you know right now? If you're going to place yourself on a scale from knowing nothing to knowing absolutely everything in the universe, where would you place yourself? Now, you don't have to answer this, and probably it will show a little bit of our personalities, wouldn't it? But realistically, this is non-mathematical, right? But I think I'm, I'm still touching the floor. That's, that's how much I know now. My hand is right down there. I, I know some stuff. But in terms of all there is to know, and you're kind of roughly, I'll put you a bit ahead of me, all right? We can be friends. You're a bit ahead of me. Maybe double. On the day you die, how much higher up the scale are you going to be? Not much higher. Are you? I mean, how much have you learned in the last 10 years? It's really, have you changed everything you've known? Nah. Learned a couple of new recipes. A couple of phone numbers. You've forgotten some things. And so the challenge is, given that we know that much now and won't really know much more at the end of our lives, what are we going to choose? Yes, we might like to have much, much, much more knowledge. But if we don't, what are we going to choose? What are you going to do? Because life doesn't go on forever. Imagine you're trapped in a cave and a rock falls starts coming and the roof is falling in. You cannot be an agnostic in that situation and say, wow, I don't really know what the best thing to do. Well, you can't know. You can be an agnostic in that situation. I don't know what to do. Who knows? I don't know the right way out. Do you? No, no one knows. I'll just stand here. But as the rocks keep falling, it might dawn on us that that's not the wisest choice. The Bible says there's safety. You see that man, Jesus Christ? He's God. That is safe. Now, you don't have to go through that door. You're not forced to. But God has made it very clear in Jesus that that is the way to safety, the way to life. That's the claim of the Bible. It's open to you. Do with it what you want. But God says you will not be disappointed if you put your faith in Jesus. If you trust in him tonight, you have life. And if you're not sure still, I'd love you to ask a question to yourself. What would convince you? What are you waiting for? What would God have to do to change your mind? And if he did it, would you actually follow him? That's just a question to ask yourself. I'd love to talk more. Or your Christian friend would love to talk, or the person who brought you here, or the person who sent this uh, recording to you. We'd love to talk and share with you why we believe in Jesus. And better than that, how we have experienced his goodness, God's cl clarity in his creation and his commandments and in his son. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to hand back to Simon. Heavenly Father, thank you very much for your word. And I pray for all those who have been listening to this, who don't know you yet. Please, would you be gracious and kind? And would they be able to know their own mind? And would they choose wisely and well for their own eternal happiness and your glory's sake? In Jesus' name, amen.